Hello, and welcome to The Politics of Gender, New Polities Podcast, where we tell you what gender is and what it isn't. This is my guest, Maria. How you doing, Maria? Hello. We are continuing our, um, I think, club. a fairly difficult book club. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if you're struggling. Um, continuing our book club discussion on Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. Um, and the reason that we're doing this, just to give you a sort of meta view, is that we really think that Judith Butler is a kind of perennial source for the challenge of queer theory, gender theory, and really just the social challenge of people uh, denying the existence of um, any kind of substantive sexual binary and um, those various things that we often find troubling but don't really realize it has an academic source. So it really seems helpful to point to her. Not that she's the only one by any means, mm-hmm. um, but definitely one of the heavy hitters that has inspired a lot of our social reality today. Fair? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. You should move the mic a little closer to you. I'm worried. worried that people can't hear you. Okay. So one of the places that we wanted to begin was just by remembering and reviewing the postmodern principles that we talked about last time. Because yeah. again, when we're going through this text, a lot of it can seem really incomprehensible. You have no idea what she's talking about. But then when you remind yourself that this is the perspective that she's coming from, yeah. suddenly it becomes a, a lot more clear. So I have these written down. So the the first two things that we were looking at last time was this knowledge principle and power principle. So the knowledge principle is this radical skepticism that we can know reality as it is. And so that kind of is the the background when you enter into uh, this text because one of the one of the keys to understanding Butler, I think, is recognizing that she's not making any metaphysical claims. This or, is all or not on purpose, anyways. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Uh, because she doesn't think that you can get to reality itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other principle was the power principle. And that's because we can't uh, know reality. All that's left is power uh, and our constructions of power into systems. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what she's doing then is performing this genealogical critique, which is not asking what is gender really, but okay, we have this, this binary before us, what power produced it, why, who is it serving? That's really what she's trying to accomplish. Totally. And then there were these um, four um, uh, kind of commitments uh, that go along with postmodernism. One was the blurring of boundaries. And that's, I think, this idea of troubling that she's talking about, why it's gender trouble, um, just to show that things are not as stable and clear as what we thought. Uh, The other is the power of language and how language actually builds our reality because it tells us how to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third was a cultural relativism, which we accidentally skipped over. Did we? Last time. We did. Whoops. <laughs> uh, and that's this idea that if we can't actually know the truth about reality, then all we're doing is constructing narratives. But who's to say that your narrative is right? My narrative oh, sure. is, is more right. It just ends up being all relative and coming down to to power about whose narrative is right about the world. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't evaluate cultures. You can't evaluate narratives. There's no possibility of that. And then the last one was 
this loss of the individual and the loss of the universal. Mm -hmm. So she flat out denies universals, mm -hmm. but then you also lose the individual a little bit in this uh, cultural construction thing too, because you only start to really know your identity and who you are through the construction that you've come to realize about yourself. It's a wild world out there. So that's uh, postmodernism in a nutshell. There it is. And if you feel like we... We uh, missed the truth of postmodernism. Just remember, it's all narrative anyways. So now, into the book. Into the book. Chapter one. Um, I would like to show my hand a little bit and also trick you guys into buying something. I wrote <laughs> this essay called What Judith Butler Means. I think it's pretty good, and it also shows my hand a little bit um, in terms of describing the consequences of Judith Butler's atheism. But I think potentially as we go through this, reading this could be a good supplement because sometimes – when you're doing book clubs, you have this like aching question to ask, like, but what do you think? What do you think? When the work is really sort of descriptive, like, okay, I'm mm -hmm. trying to get into what this person thinks because there's no way we're going to come to a real truth without like going all the way down and getting mm -hmm. into the heads of other people and then trying to come all the way back up. So if you want to read that, that is an issue 2.3 of New Polity Magazine available at newpolity.com. Now to business. Business. So what we were thinking of, of doing with chapter one specifically is just going through all the different sections and, and talking about the the main points that we think are worth highlighting Yeah. as we go through. Yeah, we're not really cool like leftists. Like They always do things like say they're going to review a book or something and then end up telling you the real meaning of the thing that's really their idea. We're not probably going to do much of that. This will be fairly boring. So... Should I say it's boring? You think that'll lose view viewers if we just lost a bunch? Oh, shoot. Sorry. Maybe. Okay, chapter one, uh, or, or part one of chapter one, women as the subject of feminism. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the opening paragraph because I think it's very helpful. So she writes, For the most part, feminist theory has assumed that there is some existing identity understood through the category of women who not only initiates feminist interests and goals within discourse, but constitutes the subject for whom the political representation is pursued. Okay, so feminist uh, movements have assumed that women exist. Totally. That is a category. They're the ones we're going to defend. So, uh, what she ends up saying later on... Um, Recently, this prevailing conception of the relation between feminist theory and politics has come under challenge from within feminist discourse. The very subject of women is no longer understood in stable or abiding terms. Uh, and let's there... be clear. I mean, she's writing this in 1991, mm -hmm. right? But I think it is extremely, maybe even more relevant today than it was when she wrote it. I mean, the idea that there is not an agreement within feminist discourse on what a woman is, is not just like a coming problem. It is the problem in feminism. Exactly. So, so what, what she's doing is moving from, from that and saying, okay, so it seems that within the feminist discourse itself, there's very little agreement after all on what it is that constitutes or ought to constitute the category of women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Therefore, we should we need to investigate this. This is this is troubling because the 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 very category in which you are uh, making your political moves is coming into question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And the one of the things that she points out right away is that you know feminism is a political discourse, which means that it has a activity behind it. It's not simply airily reflecting on the philosophical truths of man, woman, gender, etc. I mean, it does that incidentally, but the point is that it has a deliberate and immediate social aim, mm -hmm. normally expressed as the liberation of women from various powers of oppression, um, whether that's the patriarchy or expressed in some different way. But you can see the problem here that the philosophical question starts to eat away at the political desire, right? Well, if we're for the liberation of women, but if we don't know who women are, what are we doing? You know, um, and this has obviously become problematic within splits within the feminist uh, movement now where you have um, biological males um, identifying as women and then being a part of the representation of feminism, whereas for many people within who, who identify as feminists um, are nevertheless saying that um, they don't think that that person is included within the subject women. Mm -hmm. And so then she starts to take uh, this genealogical critique move, um, beginning with Foucault. So um, I'm going to share page numbers for those of you who are uh, using the, the PDF. Um, but uh, this is on page two. Foucault points out that juridical systems of power produce the subjects they consequently come to represent. So if you've read um, uh, Discipline and Punish, this is the idea of the, uh, what's it called? The delinquent. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, feminists, uh, assume that this, uh, category of women exists. Um, and she writes, but the subjects regulated by such structures are by virtue of being subjected to them form defined and reproduced in accordance with the requirement of those structures. The way that we understand, uh, this category of woman is from this political discourse that's happening and so what she ends up writing is, and the feminist subject turns out to be discursively constituted by the very political system that is supposed to facilitate its emancipation. So if it's this discourse thing that has produced this category, yeah. then why are we trying to use that thing that has suppressed, created and suppressed the category to then emancipate that category that it itself produced? Yeah, so whenever you, within the postmodern context, say, I'm going to call these things women, you're making some kind of arbitrary power move, right? Mm -hmm. And so for feminism to say, we're going to work for freedom and against tyranny by using this category that we're going to call women is taking the same sort of um, arbitrary power, just trying to reverse it, or rather reverse its direction. Um, and you can see this obviously in that it, for Judith Butler, it always leaves people out. So um, the category of woman, she speaks uh, somewhere of the fact that there are women that say that they are not represented by feminism. So the very mm -hmm. fact that there are women who are not feminists is itself evidence that the category of woman cannot be the uh, subject of feminism. It has to leave people out. And this is, this is, I mean, you can see how this is just follows from the postmodern problem, mm -hmm. right? Is that, okay, so, so the universe is just there for you to make... Uh, meaning with according to certain structures that are available to you for the sake of your own individual ends, and so you do, um, but you can't do it in a way that's satisfying to everyone because ultimately you're in violent conflict with everyone else in how your view of the world, how your language um, is imposing some sort of order on the real. 
So one one feminist response to to this problem is that well, what if we can figure out what woman is before the political discourse, mm-hmm. before the law? Um, but but she she questions that you can even come to know what what woman is before that political discourse is even in place. So again, on page two, she said, Indeed, the question of women as the subject of feminism raises the possibility that there may not be a subject who stands before the law, awaiting representation in or by the law. Um, And to be clear, like her understanding of the law is that human power that mandates in a certain respect that things be seen in a certain way, understood in a certain way, lived in a certain way. It's a very... It's a broader conception of law than like a positive. Mm-hmm. I think I think if you're not familiar with the with this postmodern stuff, you might be reading law in like a written statute sort of way. But so basically, what she's doing is is critiquing what she calls the state of nature hypothesis, um, what she calls the foundationalist fable, which really has uh, she's she's critiquing the. The, the classical liberal notion that there is a, an original state of nature of man. We can turn back the clock and see what man was like on his own, yeah. uh, his nature isolated from all of reality. And once we understand that thing, apart from all of the different impositions that we've put onto man, then we can start uh, building reality and bu- building um, politics off of that. Yeah. And what she says is so wrong about this liberal view is that whenever you get to a state of nature myth, you're always describing something that is still obviously culturally constructed. That's still obviously, um, you're not ever apart from like your linguistic, social, rational, historical world. Mm-hmm. Um, you are using it. And this is why, I mean, Catholics are often very troubled by liberalism in this sense because classical liberalism. Classical liberalism. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you, if you think about it, like if you look at any of the the great liberal thinkers, state of nature myths, when they say like, okay, let's get back to man just mm-hmm. as we know him in this kind of objective way and then build all our political structures on top of that. Mm-hmm. So they just remove him from tradition, from the church, from history, and they look at him and then describe him. Nevertheless, the descriptions are obviously very contingent. It's like, well, mm-hmm. he's an individual that doesn't get married, but only like relates to women for a certain amount of time before he, I mean, I'm talking about Rousseau's sort of. Um, savage myth um so they they're describing something but it's very obvious that it's for the purpose of building up a certain kind of society Mm -hmm. from that point they're trying to describe an original man Mm -hmm. um but even even the attempt to get back to the original man not everyone is in agreement on right and so it almost just proves her point that you can't get to the original man you can't get to the state of nature yeah um, and I think in, in many ways, uh, we can agree with that. So you can't get back to, um, I mean, we, we do get back to original man, but where do we find it? We find it in a narrative. We find it in Genesis. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the, the need for the liberals to go posit some natural beginning and then the need for the feminists to imitate that in positing a sort of natural woman, um, is to my mind, very obviously a Christian residue. Like we understand the world as being given through narrative and we actually have based our world on our understanding of how man was created in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's a, that's a thick tradition that you're not just going to like ignore. Exactly. Um, but Butler is trying to actually say, let's not do that either. Um, 
So there's no there's no woman before her cultural construction as such. So what's the solution? Okay, so you so you can't go back to this original woman before the state, before politics, before cultural constructions. And then she says that if one is a woman, and is is in scare quotes, that is surely not all one is. The term fails to be exhaustive, not because a pre-gendered person transcends the specific paraphernalia of its gender, but because gender is not always constituted coherently or consistently in different historical contexts, and because gender intersects with racial, class, ethnic, sexual, and regional modalities of discursively constituted identities. Um, so then what, what she's saying here is that... Uh, gender as it's uh as it manifests in in different uh historical contexts is not all the same um when you make the move to turn back the clock to find the original man the original woman people have different ideas and so she's putting that forward essentially just to to trouble the waters Mm -hmm. okay it seems like we're a little bit unstable Mm -hmm. if all if this i think goes back to the the cultural um relativism principle Mm -hmm. so you have all these different maybe cultural narratives or expressions of gender um, but you can't evaluate them you just notice that there's all these different ones and so that further emphasizes the fact that for the postmodern you can't really uh, come to know the the true one Mm -hmm. yeah there's another sort of way out that she posits not not as what she believes but just as a possibility for feminism um she says, is there some commonality among women that pre-exists their oppression, or do women have a bond by virtue of their oppression alone? So this is what I think is important to remember mm-hmm. that we're talking about women as the subject of feminism, which is a political activity orientated towards the liberation of women from an enemy, from the patriarchy, or mm-hmm. you know, however that enemy is expressed. And this has really been a debate within feminism for a while now, um, and it's it's fascinating because one of the attempts at saying like, okay, we can't have unity on the basis of a common um, narrative. We can't have unity on the basis of a category that fits everyone that mm-hmm. wants to belong to it. Um, but we can have unity on a common experience of oppression. And this is really interesting because it says, okay, the solidity of our political venture is now going to take its basis on our certainty about the enemy and not any kind of positive subject. So um, in sort of... In, in more traditional terms, we'd say something like this, like they're giving up on recognizing any being that's in need of protection that has particular goods that are due to it and seeking justice for that being because they're saying, well, I don't know <laughs> being at all. Mm-hmm. Um, all I have is, you know, these, these constructions. Um, so why not instead point not to um, a positive vision, but to a negative one? So what is a woman? A woman is someone oppressed in this manner. Mm-hmm. And so then there's been a lot of interesting conversations. Actually, I think they're kind of uninteresting, to be honest. But conversations within feminism where it's like, you know, person X says, um, you're not a woman unless you've experienced this sort of sexism. And then person Y says, well, I'm a trans woman and I've experienced this form of oppression. So I belong within the category woman too because we're both oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is actually a little satanic. I do. There's a little bit. What do you mean? Uh, sorry. <laughs> well, it's just like in the Luciferian sense of like your political work is war. 
there's no um there's no good being sought outside of the destruction of a perceived enemy and and part of the difficulty of this is that it makes the category the positive category rely on the continued existence of the enemy that provides you with your common well oppressor that makes us all one so you come to need the oppressor uh, and this becomes a sort of form of its self-mutilation in some way because you're at the one hand you want to be like against the patriarchy against you know whatever it is that's oppressing women but on the other hand if you ever win if you ever defeat the enemy, suddenly the basis of the category of women dissolves. And if, so, if that's all you mean by... If that's all you mean by it. If all you have women. is a... Within the postmodern context, you have nothing but a particular political goal and you're just asserting a particular form of unity that comes solely from the enemy. I, I mean, think. basically what you're saying is the will to power is satanic. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I don't mean it in like an alarmist sense. I mean, like when I read... When I look at what Satan does, what mm -hmm. Lucifer does... He, he's lost, right? He's a loser in the sense that he doesn't have any positive good to gain or protect. I mean, his work is enmity. His work is obstacle. I mean, Satan means um, adversary. And so the, the unity comes in the fact that I, that we have a common enemy. Yeah. And like that, what's that the unity of the identity. demons? I mean, they don't, they don't love each other, <laughs> but they, they all hate a common enemy. So that's sort of, that's sort of where I'm troubled by, um, by this method um but in fairness to butler that's not exactly where she goes she doesn't say like let's just you i mean i think it's a consequence of what she does say but it, it's not mm -hmm. where she goes in terms of a solution to this problem of like finding a universal subject of feminism yeah although although she does she does criticize um this uh idea of finding unity and oppression because uh she says that what ends up happening a lot in in feminism is that you end up supporting a highly western notion yeah, totally. of oppression and that's not the same experience for everyone across the globe yeah. and so even within oppression there's a lot of subdivisions and so there's even more fragmentation so she's finding fragmentation within the category of like what constitutes uh, women. And then she's also finding um, fragmentation within oppression. Totally. Like when, like when liberal feminists go like to non-Western countries and are like, don't worry, we've come here to give you your God given universal right to abortion. And then the women there are like, we don't want it. They're like, well, we're going to make you want it. <laughs> so more towards the getting towards the end of that section, if we want to, wrap up the first one yeah. she says uh indeed the fragmentation within feminism and the paradoxical opposition to feminism from quote women whom feminism claims to represent mm -hmm. suggests the necessary limits of identity politics mm -hmm. um so that's a, kind of a summary of all the things that we've been talking about before yeah she's, so, she's not going to find any kind of answer in identity um politics but she also says at the end that you know she does she does kind of offer this odd possibility uh, for how to get out of this bind mm -hmm. when I'm just going to read the last sentence, if that's all right. She says, perhaps paradoxically representation will be shown to make sense for feminism only when the subject of women is nowhere presumed. Um, and I think we're going to see more of this going forward, but this is just this inkling of if Judith Butler has any kind of positive vision, it's somehow of, um, not presuming agreeing. that categories are real. 
they're not real. So like you can use them as sort of weaponry, mm-hmm. um, but you can't, but you kind of always hold them lightly and contingently. So exactly. I'm using the term women, that includes these people because that achieves my ends. But if someone else has a different, like, you know, a different belonging to that category doesn't really bother me because I already know it's fake. Yeah, I, I think um, there's another important thing in this section before we move on. Um, so she makes the point that uh, the juridical structures of language and politics, this is on page five, constitute the contemporary field of power. Mm. So this is this is the way that things are. Uh, we have these structures of language and politics, and this is what yeah. constitutes our contemporary field of power. This is how the power dynamic is laid out. Hence, there is no position outside of this field, right? You can't go back to the state of nature, even trying to get there. You're still moving through the contemporary field of power, the the contemporary language construction in order to perceive this uh, original substance, so to speak. So uh, the only thing that's left to you, because there is no position outside of this field, the only way to move forward is through this uh critical genealogy. Um, And so she says that the critical point of departure is the historical present, as Marx puts it. All you can do is work with the contemporary field of power and move forward. Yeah. And and maybe one way of just really clearly saying this is like right now in the historical present, the word woman operates. It operates as a category. Mm-hmm. You might believe, and you might be right, or you might be wrong, that it is an arbitrary construction. But the point is, you have no other recourse in order to attain certain ends than to utilize power as it's been constructed, to usually utilize language as it's been constructed. So she's very much like creating a gap, saying like, "Look, we can know this stuff academically, but mm-hmm. politically, just use it. You know, use the words." And I think that's literally what we see. I mean, you look, yeah. <laughs> you look at people. Uh, I mean, sometimes it feels a little bit like unreasonable as if like there's a contradiction here that Mm -hmm. the same institutions that are on one day saying like, um, you know, woman is a social construct on the other day are celebrating like International Women's Day or something. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. I don't actually think it's that much of a contradiction. I think they're just they're just making the distinction that Butler is making and saying, well, maybe they're actually uh, consistent postmodernists. Maybe they're all just intentionally making a genealogical critique. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. It's probably just different people running the Twitter accounts on different days. Okay, That's so I think that wraps up the first section. Okay, so thanks um, for thanks for guiding us through that. That was not boring. I found. Oh, good. Okay. Part two. Maybe we won't lose everybody. <laughs> so the next section is called the compulsory order of sex, gender, desire. Mm-hmm. Um, sweet. So what she's trying to do in this section is uh, trouble uh, this gender-sex distinction um, and the cultural assumption that we have that uh, gender and desire follow from sex. Yeah. So there's uh, one, one paragraph. It's the second paragraph that I think is really helpful for understanding what she's talking about. Um, so, so first of all, when she's talking about sex and gender, uh, sex is just the body. It's the biological. 
and gender is the social construct. She doesn't think that there is um, a substance when she's saying uh, gender. She's not talking uh, about the possibility of actually being a man or mm -hmm. being a woman or really being anything. This is just the cultural uh, understanding. Yeah, and she says it a few different ways, but probably the clearest to me is that gender is the cultural interpretation of sex. Mm -hmm. Sex is the anatomically differentiated body. And then mm -hmm. gender within this context is what we make of it, how we express it. It's the cultural interpretation of, of sex. And she's going to go on to make that more difficult, but that's what she's yes. starting with. So uh, she says, if gender is the cultural meanings that the sexed body assumes, then a gender cannot be said to follow from sex in any one way. Uh, and I, I remember reading that the first time. Um and thinking that what she was saying was that uh, gender cannot be said to follow from sex at all. But I think it is key that she says in any one way. Mm -hmm. And that's what she's using as leverage to trouble things. And so I think what she's getting at is that, okay, you have uh, sex. We'll just assume that that's, this binary is real for the moment. So assuming that there's uh, this sex, we can see in different uh uh, historical cultures that sex is manifested in in different ways mm -hmm. gender is manifested in different ways it mm -hmm. means slightly different things totally. its roles are, are slightly different um, and they don't even have to be radically different for her all she's saying is that they don't always manifest in the same exact way yeah. so if that's the case her next sentence is taken to its logical limit the sex-gender distinction suggests a radical discontinuity between sexed bodies and culturally constructed genders. And so that's kind of where she loses me. Yeah. I, I find that not <laughs> very compelling. Um, so so if, if there's not uh, any one way that gender always follows from sex, therefore it could manifest in any possible way. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah, and in fairness to Butler, I don't think she thinks that either. It's just that she's kind of trapped within her presumption. So insofar as she bases further arguments on this, I think it's a genuine flaw. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's also saying, like you kind of mentioned, like she's taking that, well, the sex body as a given. She's just presuming that, okay, we're going to say that there's this definite given of like a sexual binary and anatomy and genetics and, and biology. Um. Yeah, but but on the face of it, it's totally dissatisfying. Like, uh, how on earth could you ever say that because a gender cannot f follow from sex in any one way, that that means there's radical discontinuity? I mean, when I mm -hmm. think of what radical discontinuity means, I'm being kind of literal, like at the root. Like, at root, they are discontinuous. But mm -hmm. the way I put it, I have a note here. I said, the relationship of X to Y, where X is the cultural meaning of Y, is not a relationship of radical discontinuity. It's like if I had, if I had, you know, the cultural interpretation of brunettes and my interpretation could be wildly different than someone else's, nevertheless, you don't derive from that a disconnect between the cultural interpretation of brunettes and brown hair as mm -hmm. if like this is somehow this, you know. Yeah, that it's, it's free floating and she well, ends she up says using that, that, yeah. that, that word later on. Yeah. Um, she says the, um. When the, construct, when the constructed status of gender is theorized as radically independent of sex, and it hasn't been, so I don't know why she's saying that, but there you go, gender itself becomes a free-floating artifice with the consequence 
that man and masculine might just as easily signify a female body as a male one, and woman and feminine a male body as easily as a female one. So I think that if sex is binary in, in, in the assumption here, so there's sexed bodies and they are twofold in some mm -hmm. way, then I don't think it at all follows that the interpretation of that fact is so free-floating that yeah. you don't have a, um, a, a supervenient or like dependence of the interpretation on that given binary, um, like the experience of the thing as binary. It's like, no, I, I just disagree. It's it's not the case that that leads to, you know, this fundamental detachment from sex and gender. And the most charitable read I think I can give of that is that if she's being consistent with her postmodern principles – um, if you, if you really can't get to know reality as it is, uh, if that is impossible, then in a way there is a, a, a radical disconnect between yeah. the constructions, and the reality there's at no place do they actually meet at yeah. no place do they actually touch. Right. You might say something like she has explained the possibility of like the, the logical possibility of a disconnect between the cultural and the sexed body, but only because they're two different things. Like a cultural interpretation is not a fact of sex. Um, but that's not really to say much, especially when you look at our history, which has been a largely coherent history of interpreting sex in ways that are directly related to the object of interpretation, you know, that are limited by it. So I, I think that what she's saying here, um, her, this radical disconnect, this gender as this free-floating artifice uh, makes a little bit more sense in what she's saying in the following two paragraphs because this is when she's troubling uh, the category of sex itself. Yeah, yeah, this makes more sense to me too. She says, um, what is sex anyway? How often we've all asked that question. Is it natural, anatomical, chromosomal, chromosomal or hormonal? And how is a feminist critic to assess the scientific discourses which purport to establish such facts for us? Does sex have a history? Um, and then she goes on. If the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender, with the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. Okay. Yeah. I think that that's uh, – the first time that I read it, I was just very confused how you could even move that far. Um, but there's something else that she says down the line that – in the, the next section that helps me to understand what she's getting at there. Yeah, I've got another thing too. Do you have yours? I can uh, – Yeah, this okay. is on page eight. Um, uh there is no recourse to a body that has not always already been interpreted by cultural meanings. Right. So when we look at the body and we say that it is this sex, um, the reason why we, when, when we are doing that, we're already saying that within a cultural constructed meaning and language, sex means something to us yeah. that's why we notice the category in the first place yeah. that's why we've given a name to it yeah um and we also seem to to make this intuitive uh leap from um 
having sexual characteristics to actually being that sex. Um, and so I think that's what she is getting at, that there's no recourse to to sex as just being a fact without meaning. Yeah. There's we, no such thing as like brute facts. I mean, mm-hmm. the point is that if you already come to the appearance of sex and anatomy and genetics and whatever with the understanding that gender is a culturally is a cultural expression of that thing then you cannot see sex alone you can only see the thing that motivates this particular cultural expression the thing that we name beings as mm-hmm. um or, or the thing that governs how we name beings and, yeah. and i think like you you kind of mentioned it already but like when when you know the the baby comes out of the womb and we look at the genital organs and say it's a girl mm-hmm. um What's not, what's not happening, right, is that we're looking at the genital organs and saying something like, it's a human with female characteristics, right? We're, we're not judging the facticity of sex. We are seeing sex as already meaning gender, as yes. already indicating yeah. it's the substance um, that, that it's supposed to, uh, that's supposed to uh, ride on top of it almost. Mm-hmm. Um and one more quote, it comes from much later uh, in this chapter. It's from uh, Monique Wittig. Um, and I think it makes a, a kind of more brutal sort of attempt at saying this. Um, Sex is taken as a immediate given, a sensible given, physical features belonging to a natural order. But what we believe to be a physical and direct perception is only a sophisticated and mythic construction, an imaginary formation. Yeah. So, this is where I think it's very difficult because there's, because on the one hand you have to say that they're onto something, mm-hmm. because things appear according to our world, according mm-hmm. to our language or our mode of being. Yeah, you know that's Heidegger. Yeah, I mean, we we don't ever, we're not liberals, we don't ever get to occupy this objective um, place within the cosmos. Like, we always know has... Um, we're always embedded. interpreting the world through meaning already. Yeah. You, you can't, it's not possible to be a neutral observer of facts, because even the facts that you are... Uh, paying attention to you 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 chose them because you think that they're relevant that they're valuable that they're meaningful mm-hmm. and i don't think it's particularly helpful to um take the enlightenment position that like somehow we can have this totally um disembedded knowledge of the world and i think that the difficulty is that for the the catholic affirms this but they affirm it very differently in the sense that um, for us, you really can make the actual appearance of things appear differently, but it's not detached from a certain way that you ought to be, um, the, the world you ought to be building and, and the reality you ought to be perceiving. So what I mean is this, like you can conceive of an extremely sinful society, right? That gets to the point that when they see, um, a woman say, purely see in in the actual like facticity of the body an object of use and they see nothing else Mm -hmm. and on the other side you can see a very virtuous society developing its language developing its culture and seeing that same facticity 
and seeing some of the things that we, you know, as Catholics love to discuss, like the complementarity, right, of the body with, mm-hmm. with the male or, or like the um, sort of transcendent meaning of the body, the spousal meaning of the body, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the point is, what, what what we're not saying is that it's not possible to change the facts that you see on the basis of your habitual being in the world. The world appears to people according to their mode. It's in the mode of the knower. And knowers can be evil and they can be good and they can be habituated in different ways. So this is not relativism, I don't think, because the, because the Catholic is always saying the the world that we should be constructing, the facts that we should be revealing should always be deeper and moving deeper and deeper into reality. Whereas for the postmodern, it's kind of arbitrary, I think. Yeah, so so I think what, what she's getting at that um, is that we can only come to know reality through this construction, um, through our human lens, I suppose. And I think in that the Catholic can be in agreement. Like we, we come to know things through being human and part of how we encounter the world is is through our language um how we've come to understand things together um and through our particular individual perspective as uh, a human being because this is kind of a dumb example but uh, maybe you take something like a table the way that uh, a table is going to look to a human being and mean for a human being is going to be something different for a dog it's going to look different sure. for the dog. It's going to have a different perspective and it means something different for a dog. It's not the place that we sit out with the family and eat dinner. Table sure. means something different, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can only come to know the world through our, our human perspective. Um, and this only ends up being a cynical thing and a bad thing if um, that means that our our perspective can't actually touch reality. Sure. If we can't actually know anything about reality yeah and i think that's that's where we start making uh the opposite turn of the postmodernism postmodernist yes that's true but we we believe really on the basis of faith that the the given world is intelligible because god intended it to be that way yeah i mean think about the very term construction always means a construction of something right Mm -hmm. so even in the language the postmoderns are admitting some primary material that is the basis of their construction they're just saying well we're totally alienated from knowing what that is at all but the catholic is saying that you can construct the world to be i mean (laughs) we have good constructions or bad constructions Mm -hmm. right we can we can construct language and habits in our world in order to reveal more and more about the real and the infinite mystery of the gift of creation Mm -hmm. or we can increasingly obscure that by bad constructions constructions Mm -hmm. that obscure the the real i mean you can build a peaceful city, you can build a technological slave state, and for the citizens of both cities, um, reality, the things they think of as facts, are going to actually appear different. Yeah. And I think that's just crucial. And this is for, there's a, and I'm trying to be more careful when I talk about like a Catholic response, but there's a, a sort of um, Catholic doctrine. Uh, there's been a magisterial, I mean, Pope Francis has definitely said it, um, defense of um, the sexual binary that um, I know Pope Francis has made and several bishops and, and uh, groups of bishops have made saying that sex and gender cannot be detached from each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that admitting some sort of distinction between the facticity of the body and then the cultural interpretation of it, but mm-hmm. then saying like, okay, but 
these things are cannot be independent from each other. Yeah, and, it's not actually radically discontinuous. Yes, yes, which I think is true. But mm -hmm. I also want to say I, I think I understand because of this why that's not going to convert the world. Uh, mm -hmm. It's certainly not going to convert um, um, the queer theorists. <laughs> and the reason is is because of what we just said. I mean, they're arguing that the very appearance of facticity of sex is governed by that thing you're calling gender. And gender, that mm -hmm. is your cultural world, your cultural interpretation, is actually the thing that's producing its appearance as sex in the first place, as that fact, initial facticity. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's the same critique as the um, critique of liberalism, right? It's saying like, mm -hmm. okay, you're saying you found the state of nature, but in fact, your um, state, what looks like the state of nature to you is based on this current historical moment, this cultural mm -hmm. interpretation of reality. It appears reasonable to you that man began as a naked individual who wandered around the woods, right? But mm -hmm. if you had started somewhere else, that wouldn't have been your state of nature. It's That's an analogy, like a political analogy to the sexual here. Like yeah. you are saying that you can have this access to facticity, but if it wasn't for your particular cultural expression of it, the habitual modes, the way it's governed by by norms, you would not have seen this um, particular facticity. And so, so it yeah. seems that queer theory is operating at a much deeper level of skepticism, and it seems where um, when it when it comes to uh, apologetics for the the Christian stance, we can come at it from two ways. And one dialogue with with people who believe that uh, we can come to know reality, that um, our constructions and or our conceptions of reality and reality itself touch. Um, and if that's true, like if I can if uh, I can trust my my sense perception of the world, if I can trust my experience of of man and woman, yeah. okay, we can move from here further into yeah. to dialogue, and I can show you. Uh, and here it's here's why it's it's fitting that what it means to be a man is this, and what it means to be a woman is this. So you can have that level of of discourse, and it's awesome. Um, but then for the person who's at a deeper level of skepticism, who doesn't think that construction and reality can't touch, or if it does, we sure can't know it. Mm -hmm. um, we can only obscure reality; we can't ever illuminate it. Yeah, that that kind of that kind of discourse isn't going to reach that person. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I think in in some ways, and this is not any like professional opinion or anything. It just seems like um, at that point the question needs to be about atheism and about belief and mm -hmm. the cosmos. Um, and as much as we might think the answer is like let's just hit those science books hard, uh, we should probably be hitting like the five ways of Aquinas or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, doesn't always get its results, but okay. So is that, I mean, that's part two of, I mean, I, I think that pretty much does it. I mean, she, at the very end talks about everything we've talked about by saying that, um, this effort to make sex the kind of, um, foundational state of nature thing is to cast it into a pre-discursive domain. And it might be helpful just to know that that's sort of a synonym for, for everything we've discussed that like, um, what it seems to do to the postmodern is basically arbitrarily and with great power say that this experience is prior to language and prior to, to culture, mm -hmm. cultural interpretation. Um, but that itself is just an act of power. It's not true.
Yeah. So we, we can't know sex before gender. Um, cool. So maybe they're just the same thing. Maybe the same thing. Yeah. Hey, this has been a really long discussion. So we have decided um, after the fact to split this thing into two parts. That's all. So this signifies the end of the first part. Be tuned for next time. Bye.